Christopher, Chris Bird, we're going to talk about. Yes. We're going to talk about uh, Eddie Detroit and everything. Let's get let's yes. get Eddie's backstory. Ah, uh, the infamous Eddie Detroit. Yes. Well, like from from my general recollection of having spent like um, four years intensively with Eddie, once he he molded me into a, a stage musician. You see, because. I was terribly afraid of being on stage. It was like horrifying to me, like performing in front of people. But Eddie immediately forced me <laughs> into pole position to to like going to these shows every week, multiple shows a week, and and performing my songs. And um, I was introduced to Eddie Detroit in 1990 by the infamous uh, Doug Clark from Mighty Sphincter. Oh, who was yes, Doug. Yeah, Doug, I met in 86 for the first time as a junior in high school at a movie, and he sat in front of me. And when we got up to leave, he's wearing this, like, purple cape, you know. I said, what is that smell? I never smelled it before. And he told me it was patchouli. And then Doug ended up being the catalyst, which brought me into the whole Phoenix underground music scene that I otherwise had no knowledge of. Or, and so it was like a gift from God, in a way, to Doug... <laughs> Every door that Doug opened became my family. Like, I don't have much of a family to speak of, even to this day. Like, I just, I can't go to my mom's, you know, and see her. And, you know, my relatives are hostile, the few that exist. And so I didn't have any real family. And, and Doug took me in and took me to his um, brother and sister law's house, uh, Dan and Mary Clark. And then, you know, it was just, he kept opening door after door. He, he, in, in like 89, 90 fancied himself a father figure to me. And he really turned me on to a lot of things that were like gifts of what Doug found worth appreciating in life. What did, what did, and he, so, what did he t- turn you on to music, art? What was it? Well, um, I started hanging out at Dan and Mary's. Me and Doug would be partying kind of in our own zone in the living room of Dan and Mary's small house. And in the like kitchen, for instance, would be the meat puppets, like, you know, getting ready to go on tour with Nirvana. Like, you know, it was just like, it was like center stage for all the music that I loved because I heard um, Nirvana for the first time on a Sub Pop 200 compilation in 89. And I said immediately, that band, more than any, other bands on this compilation, I knew I was going to make it. And by 92, they had. So Doug, you know, getting back to Eddie, basically, you know, he turned me on to Eddie. It was one of his gifts to me of um, opening the door that would become, like, so important um, to me as development of as a musician. Like, if it weren't for Eddie, um, like, just, like, he, he taught me very very um, intensive ethical operating premise as a stage musician. You know, he would, he would like be like a drill sergeant at times 
you know, and how, like, we're loading in or how I set things up, you know, all the details he was coaching me and correcting me and installing, like, very strict standards of conduct in the craft, you know. And Eddie lived by the standards. He, He told me, like, the story of Eddie from him, as I recollect it, you know, the first thing with Eddie and music was like, uh, he had a record store in Detroit. He came from a Lebanese uh, family, you know, and so did the Sun City Girls. That's why there's synergy between Eddie and the Sun City Girls. I think more more than anything is uh, a tie in culture, ethnic origin. And so, yeah, like Alan Bishop now lives in, from the Sun City Girls, lives in Cairo and has his record label previously conducted in Seattle to move to Cairo. And these people that, like, were basically that whole network of punk rock underground in Phoenix going back to the early 80s and and even earlier with Doug and his brother, I mean, the Feeders, you know, and... um, With the Brains. Was it the Brains? The Brains, yeah, Elementary Monster. Like, Doug, basically, from, from, from the time that we really started hanging out intensively in 89 to like 2000 he made sure i was with him in every studio recording like he really wanted to share with me this experience that was just like became you know who i am and like we've been losing people like doug and like man it hits me really hard because there were times in my life with these people that you know these were my family. These were the people that I could really connect with and that even gave a shit about me, you know, and took me in. So, like, yeah, 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 that's what we're talking about. Like, you have no idea how important, like, I finally broke down. I didn't think I felt anything about Eddie. And then I was telling somebody about the recording that he had told me we we're going to do, you know, how he's going to produce and all the things he was going to do and the vision of it. And it suddenly fucking bitch slapped me upside the head. And I could, I started crying. I had to put the phone down. I couldn't communicate any longer. And then I couldn't stop crying forever. You know, I was in the bathroom, just like sitting on the toilet crying. And it wouldn't stop, you know. I started taking a shower. It still wouldn't stop. And so I really, it was nice to, to feel because I didn't think after like another person from the folk punk circuit, Andy Warpeg, had died like a week or two before. And I went through uh, some experiential shit with that because we just talked about doing some shows here down in Bisbee. And Eddie would have been a part of those shows. You know, we kind of did shows together in my early years with Eddie, with Andy. And, um, and then like days later, he's dead, you know? And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah. Things change so quickly. Yeah, so after the Eddie basically sold the record store and then went to London, England and became a street musician for, I used to know this better um, accounting, but I'm going to say 69, 771, and 73 or 4 were the four years that he, you know, had visa to be in downtown London performing as a street musician. And, um, then, like, when he came back to the United States, he invariably landed in Los Angeles 
And this would have been um, in the 70s, actually, to the early 80s. Okay. And, uh, and he had um, Eddie Detroit in the Liquid Gang playing um, the Starwood and the Whiskey. And he'd have a contortionist on stage with him, a screenwriter um, by the name of John Duffy, who offered to um, train me personally as a screenwriter. He sent me, I still have the outline of the curriculum. And he, and basically, I just applied to, um, you know, the guy from uh, East Twin Peaks and uh, Lost Highway, Eraserhead, David Lynch. I went. I applied to David Lynch's Master of Science Program or Arts, actually, um, at Maharishi Institute Combining Transcendental Meditation. Right, the one in and Iowa. They, right. Yeah, and they called me and told me I, I got in. Oh, really? And right. then, and then they called me and told me I didn't, and they were like totally crushed me. Like I didn't know what the fuck to do for three years after that. <laughs> I was just there, like in a daze. Chris, so there's can, this, yeah. there, there's this uh, website called the uh, the blacklist. Dot org and they, uh-huh. they you can they have people screenwriters go on there and they you could pitch your stuff there and everything and then there's people actually get work out of there real work so I'm people, glad people know recorded. now I just announced it on the podcast but it is it is a good place to go resource and um, wow yeah blacklist.org so um well, well thank thank you for that yeah I mean good luck on your screenplays I I, I hope the best but um like so Eddie was in living in Los Angeles in the late seventies. You're saying then? Yeah, like the stories he told me of being in Los Angeles, some of them are pretty nefarious. I mean, uh, one thing he told me is that the, his practice space, right? Um, that they were like sharing it with uh, Belinda Carlisle and the Go Go's. Oh right. And and uh, Eddie was all into the occult and stuff, and he was part of a, a order called the Order of the Ram, which you know didn't discriminate between good and evil. You know, it was an all, all entity uh, encompassing, um, you know, organization, but that allowed Eddie to really explore his interest in Pan, as it were. And, um, you know, he really embraced it uh, for a time period there, at least. And so Belinda Carlisle was supposed to be this um, infamous member of a witch's coven, according to Eddie. And he had just put out, I think, one forty-five on the record, which I guess is pretty hard to find. And um, you, it was called "You Burn Out, Baby, You Burn Me Out." It was on one side, I think, and some about this nudist beach that he used to hang out on the other side. I've never heard the, that. That if you ever come across it, um, let's try and get it. Yeah, <laughs> like and anybody um, out there, try let us know if you find that forty-five too. Yeah, yeah. To, to just to get be, people to have access to it, because like what, what ended up happening with Eddie in, in the big picture was he became like an underground cult classic based on his work in 1982 with his album um, Immortal Gods. Like that got picked up and made into vinyl under three different labels, I think. You know, reissues and and um, like. It was because of that album and and the interest in, in Eddie that um, you know in 2015-16 he he got put on this like European tour and he was playing like folk festivals in the summer you know and th- they paid his way and everything you know to come over there and perform he was so 
well received, you know. And the culture and appreciation of music in Europe is, I've heard over and over again, it's like completely night and day compared to America. Like people there really love their music and they really embrace and appreciate the musicians that, you know, make an effort to get on stage and perform there. Well, America, so, you know, Americans, you know, don't appreciate anything with like that unless they die. And then at that point, they miss them dearly and should appreciate them while yeah. everybody's alive, for sure. Yeah, yeah, the entitlement issues, I guess. <laughs> um, capitalism, yay. <laughs> yay, capitalism. Ooh, fuck it. Yeah. Well, let's not even go down that road. Yeah. <laughs> we we kind of covered it in a pre-interview uh, session. Yeah, well, so, like... um. What brought Eddie to Phoenix? Do you, did he tell you that? Well, you know, from coming to well, Los Angeles. Well, um, you know, like he he had some bad like interactions, like you know, a, a hooker basically trying to roll him and the pimp rolling him, and Eddie kicking the big old uh, black guy, not that he used that word, um, in the nuts and running out the door and barely getting away in his van with the dude running up beating on his. You know, so he might have, like, been concerned about um, some kind of bad politics going on with respect to his um, lust for love <laughs> on, on the, you know, whether it's Sunset and what's the other, buying those two streets, and that where all the shit went down. But in L.A., it just started getting more and more expensive. He, he was hanging out with the germs and uh, uh, going into Laurel Canyon, hanging out with the mamas and papas. Big Cass or whatever her name was. Mama Cass. Um, Mama Cass, yeah. This is all part of stories he told me, you know. Um, so basically, he came to to Phoenix, probably seeking a cheaper rent. And um, he told me in the beginning he was living in a hotel and how, like, there was a small window in his bathroom. And he came into his room and there's a black guy trying to get in and out of his room through this small window. So, like, that's probably down off of Van Buren. Like, yeah, I was Eddie about to was say, the, it sounds like Van Buren Street. Yeah, Eddie was the connoisseur of uh, cheap hotels. Like, his song, There ain't no more cheap hotels no more. The bums are sleeping in the bushes, you know? That song, <laughs> that, that's kind of his, like, neo, more recent work pop where he had a surge in popularity was off of those songs. And, and, uh, in my neighborhood, babies killing babies are having babies in my neighborhood. Neighbor's dog got rabies in my neighborhood, you know, like this. And, uh, <laughs> th those videos, uh, that came out was like right about the time I started playing with them. And, uh, he brought me immediately into the recording he was doing at revolver Rec records and had me play on, on a track of the most popular song on that uh, album. And, uh, you know, he just, like, fostered and, and supported my me and, and forced the development. Like, he'd push me, push me, push me, and just provide opportunities constantly. And it became a routine after a while. But, uh, yeah, so, you know, he, when... The, the, the what do you call it, gentrification started occurring in Phoenix. Like all the artists had been living downtown for cheap, you know, in the late eighties and early nineties, and and then you know now like the, the Willow District and Roosevelt and downtown Phoenix were 
that used to be make sense to live. You know, it's just like you can't afford it anymore. And only yuppies are, are occupying the apartments that we once uh, thrived in, you know, as, as underground artists, musicians. And yeah. Phoenix. And so that, that I really started hanging out with Doug Clark in um, the late 80s at the Beau Chateau off of 7th and Roosevelt. In fact, that, that's where I first met you and at the Beau Chateau where I was living. You came over to my house. And I met you and Marty. And so, and I'd always been, like, wanted to, yeah, I I always wanted to do, like, what you did, like, before I met you. And then meeting you, it was, like, ingrained in my brain, the template. And then, like, about four, three, four years later, um, I ended up, like, doing my version of Bohemia After Dark for a spell in the Phoenix Access Network. Sunday, 11.05 a.m. Sunday, 8.33 p.m. In the heavens somewhere, at one time, everything was all calm and collected. Everything was great, brotherly love and all that good stuff. And all of a sudden, God decided to invent something called pride and ego. And of course, you know who got a hold of that. (laughs) And God said, oh, no, man, you ain't going to stay in my house. You're going back to your own house down to earth. Well... You know, the, the thing is, is that, is God the man behind the curtain like in The Wizard of Oz? Does good and evil come from the same source? Shakespeare once said, it's only God talking to himself again. And that's where the song comes from, Immortal Gods. Is a god who's like Medusa turning men into stone? Shown a park, angel in the park. Did you ever think good and evil are from the same source? Of course you did. Like to peace in the same body. Immortal gods, immortal gods. Like to in the same body. Immortal gods. Singleness of purpose. Do you know? 
singleness, just like Apollo. around. 
around me and make things worse. Infinity Tattoo, 2138 East Burnside, Portland. You can bring in your original artwork or pick from one of our designs. We also offer body piercing and ear and nose piercing. Infinity Tattoo, 2138 East Burnside. And the thankless really network, the thankless access network that we were talking about earlier too. You know, like the pounding yeah, your head against I'm, the wall for no reason. Am I going to get somewhere with this? Maybe eventually. But anyways, well, uh, like I, I had spent like months in pre-production, like doing all these killer interviews with a three-chip camera, with a professional video camera operator whose dad was the producer of Channel Five News, and. um I lobbied his dad um, on behalf of the Corporation Commission when I got adopted into politics around that time. Anyways, like they had this true definition company and tons of gear. And um, they did mostly corporate industrial um, broadcast production. And um, the Paul Huff was the guy's name. Well, he was bipolar. He was living in, in a like a camper that was on the ground in my backyard that kind of came with a property I was restoring that was just like had to be totally uh, rehabbed in Coronado District wood floors all that kind of thing and uh, so I had booked and conducted the interviews for a shitload of bands that were coming through town back then you know and like these killer interviews with Mud Honey and Jesus Lizard and stuff like he basically I went out of town and he started a fight with my dad who had just come to stay with me after not seeing him for years and I came back and I said, Paul, what the fuck? I said, you know, I wouldn't, I would walk away from any conflict your dad tried to start with me out of respect to the fact that he's your dad. Right. Like, I can't have you like fucking acting like it's okay to get in a fight with my father. You know, that's not cool. And so he ended up leaving and he, he wouldn't give me any of the footage. He kept it all. It's never been utilized. And, I just blew off doing the show. I was like, oh, well, I guess that's a bat. It's not going to happen now. And then all of a sudden, the, the access station called and said, where's your show? And like, all of a sudden, they sprang into action and got all this material together that was part of Placebo's catalog, I think Greg Hines had given to me. And I went down and edited it in their uh, Phoenix uh, I-17 studio back then, and that was my first show. Yeah, right by right by Metro Center. That yeah, 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 yeah. A, <laughs> a little bit of yeah, a little bit of north right there. Yeah, on the frontage road. Yeah, the frontage road to seventeen. Yeah, they're yeah, still so, there right back. <laughs> and then, and then all of a sudden, Greg Hines, who had purchased like this editing rack for a shitload of money, when him and Tony Victor had placebo records off the proceeds from JFA skateboards and albums. Um, I, I'd seen it in Heinz's house in like 80, 89 and my eyes just locked on that fucking rack. And I was just thinking to myself, I have to have that rack. And then so in 93, right after I did that first episode, uh, Heinz calls me and he's gotten in a fight with his, his, uh, old lady, uh, Mitzi, who was a uh, DuPont, um, heir, you know, and he, he needs me to come over and get the rack immediately and, and put it in my house. And I was just like, oh, my God, you know, finally, my vision is coming true. <laughs> so anyway, getting back to Eddie. 
Okay, go back to that. Yeah. Yeah, so so basically, um, like, so me and Doug were sharing an apartment in 1989. He was, like, playing with Victor Akers, his sister-in-law and brother's band. And he started, like, having me come along to all their shows, like, hiking the gear up three flights of stairs to the Subcultural Arts Center. And I remember this Christian guy, because it was kind of a Christian venture at first, to lure in the, the, the people, you know, and then influence them with Christianity as an end game scenario. And Doug's on stage playing, and one of the, like, this old hillbilly kind of, like, preacher guy comes up to me. He kind of looks like a snake up there, don't he? <laughs> 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 I'm just like, he doesn't realize, like, Doug's my closest friend at that point. Like, going over and hanging out with Doug was just, like, he would he smoked tons of pot, and, like, pot never worked on me the same as when I was around Doug. It was like the, the exposure to his consciousness would take you down a wormhole of reality that was just, like, an experience, you know? Isn't that weird? Some just, people you hang out with, you smoke weed, and you get higher like that? Yeah, maybe it is the connection yeah, of the consciousness. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Doug, Doug's resonant frequency and... His really like complex and sophisticated intellect, you know. I mean, he'd have his um, mania cycle from time to time, which was a drag for everybody. But you know, I learned just to, you know, just not expose myself during those periods. But I always maintained a look for him. So, like Doug, and the many gifts that he gave me, and kind of like offering me life special things that he he had dominion over took me one night to Eddie's place called the Grotto I guess it was off at Indian school or something I can't remember exactly where over in the streets it's no longer there but he had a building and it was like a coffee folk house you know and uh, he was really into voodoo and he had a lot of ornate like um, you know figurines and different like um you know, spiritually, you know, charged objects, you might say, as like, um, you know, fanfare for his ambiance in the back where he did the Dion Fortune uh, Psychic Network. And I stayed, like, and read lots of books on tarot, but it was by watching Eddie, who I became friends with as a consequence of this whole, um, you know, exposure to this person, through Doug and um, Doug would even in later years always be trying to push me to do things with Eddie, like get into going with Eddie to his bondage um, club kind of events. <laughs> you know, like Doug was trying to foster that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like one time I accidentally went into a party off a of grand at the old Masonic hall there down towards downtown. And I didn't know what I was going to. This girl I knew told me about it. And uh, I get there, and they have, like, an exhibition of, like, bondage scenarios where performers are doing shit. And Eddie's in this, like, Tarzan, like, uh, loincloth thing playing the, the conga or, you know, the, you know the, I think it's like a palm tree made into a drum or something. And, like, Eddie was always so excited and, and re- warm and receiving me whenever, you know, we, we got together. And... Um, I mean, he, 
when we were playing out, he was constantly trying to sell me to going to the bondage parties and stuff. And, you know, I, I never like went down the road that far with him, but I remember him like at the Emerald Lounge sucking this girl's toes. who was like Terry Cloth, uh, a stinker drummer of that era, um, his girlfriend. And I never, like watching Eddie suck those toes was just like, I never seen anything like it. <laughs> like, he, and he started turning into this other being that he described to me in bits and pieces, like that he, he likened to, well, likened, <laughs> likened to a uh, werewolf. <laughs> he, he had, he had a, an inner werewolf, you know, that would come out and was influenced by the moon and would, you know, he had fetishes, you know, that were part of the werewolf persona. And so it was in that, this like observing him, like go to town on this girl's foot and then lounge, which was probably the first time I'd ever witnessed uh, the, the, the just sort of scratch uh, manifestation of Eddie's uh, inner uh, demon or werewolf or whatever the hell it was. Carolina lycanthropizer, perhaps. Did he call uh, it the werewolf? Is that what what is? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you imagine werewolf, you know, Jack the Ripper, that, that kind of, like, he, he loved, like, uh, old, old B movies, like Trip with the Teacher. I remember, like, he was meeting the star of Trip with the Teacher over in L.A., and, and they they did some um, activity together, you know, in Wild State. He was so into it. And Trip with the Teacher is, like, the parts that he loves so much were these, like, uh, biker rape things. He says the sound of clothing ripping, you know, was like heaven, you know. And, and one time I was telling him this Christian neighbor was, like, um, you know, giving me some problems. And he's like, well, we need to take her out to the cemetery and, and you know, pull out the, the lycanthrope. Yeah, you know, I'm like that's pretty that's pretty heavy, Eddie. I never thought of that. <laughs> you know, so like, wow, it's kind of extreme. Deep thought uh, there, man. <laughs> yeah, I was like, it was like he 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 very occasionally, but he trusted me enough to to share that kind of stuff with me. Like, you know, as dark as it got with Eddie, he 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 shared it with me. You know, but but by the time I had we had started like me doing stuff together musically. Like he he was totally divorced from that previous existence, you might say, and 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 trying to distance himself, you know, from, from like one of the songs that I, I think Eddie's best song is the 1982 uh, off the Immortal Gods album. It's called I Am Pazuzu. It's like, have you ever seen a hearse go by and wonder if you're the next to die? They put you in a big white sheet, put you in the ground about six feet deep, and then you're good for about two more weeks. And then the worms crawl in and the worms crawl out. The worms lay a peanut butter on your snout. I am Pazuzu and I'm talking to you like this, you know? And, uh, like, I thought it was, I just love that song, but he would never play it because to him, he was basically invoking. Uh, in ritualistic form, Pazuzu. And um, I think as you get older, like, you want to, like, the, the, the thought of perhaps being having some liability clause con connecting you to your previous uh, spiritual allies and evil becomes um, something you're trying to indemnify yourself from. 
by 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 not not um, embracing it whatsoever or letting yourself get carried away once you the way you once were. I don't know. That's my sense of of, of why he he just wouldn't play it and was like he feared it. He he wouldn't play it because he did not want to uh, possibly be invoking you know. Pazuzu, which Pazuzu is the demon and exorcist, right? But if you look at like what Pazuzu's, um, you know, textbook description is in, in demonology, it, he's, he's like the um, desert uh, haboob storm entity, right? He, he's, he accompanies those kind of events and originally from Africa, right? But um, like, I was kind of aware of all of this and like, I think it was, Maybe 2010 or so, and uh, that's when that huge haboob hit Phoenix, and it was like I became acutely aware of like the energy of Pazuzu in relationship to this event. It's very like surreal experience. Like it was kind of weird, you know, and it happened spontaneously. I wasn't looking for it. It just you know traipsed across my awareness. Interesting. And uh, yeah, 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 and. Um, so, yeah. So I don't know. That that's the kind of stuff I really wanted to perform with. Eddie really wanted to be my drummer and perform with me folk punk stuff. He loved my material, and he loved when I'd write a new song. He's always asking me like, "What's the next new song?" And when I'd come to one of his coffee house gigs and and audition for a live audience, my song to gauge like audience reaction to determine you know, what, what, what it was going to, it was useful or not, what the utility of the song was. Well, that's great. And, uh, yeah, but Eddie would bring a small trap kit and back me up, like, as a punk rock drummer. Like, the first time we got together concerning music, he basically came over to my house and auditioned for me, and I had my own drum kit in the music room, and I was amazed. I had no idea, because I'd seen him for years, like, playing the, with his little uh, jungle hat, you know, safari hat on at the coffee plantation in Tempe in Scottsdale. And just play just bongos there, or, you know, just a single drum usually, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was there constantly, though. You, like, anytime you went there, you're going to see him. And so I just thought of him as, as that kind of a drummer and nothing else. And then, like, you know, I, I remarked to Dan Clark, I'm like, dude, like, Eddie, like, I had no fucking idea, like, he was such a good, and that Dan's like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's really good on a trap kid. I'm like, no shit, <laughs> you know? And, um...
is full and cannot accept any messages at this time. Goodbye. Like, so he blew me away and then it was on, you know, and like when we'd play a gig with just him and I um, playing some of my songs and uh, with him backing me up on drums, it was really raw, probably the best folk punk ever tracing across public view in the Phoenix, Arizona area. I mean, he was so good. It was just like, it was like, it was fucking on and we'd kill it. You know, you know, when you kill it and everything's just perfect. That's how me and Eddie were in that capacity. And he wanted me to go on a tour with him and Sun City Girls, um, Alan Bishop on West Coast tour, I think 2015 or 16. And I'd already told my drummer who, like, I found out when we got to the studio had hideous timing, like 180 edits of a freaking song. I was like... I had taken drum lessons and worked with the metronome, so my timing was like maybe there were three edits at the beginning or end of a song that needed to be corrected, but, you know, it was on pretty much close to Rolex, you know. And I, I'm i trying to get this guy, my drum teacher, I'm trying to give my metronome and, and telling him what to do to visually monitor it, put the headphones on, auditory monitor it, you know, have it traipse across your consciousness on as many levels as possible so that you set your inner clock. Once you set it, you're good. But if you've never set it, <laughs> you're, you have disasters like that happen. You know, so, but Eddie was impeccable timing and he's the kind of guy who goes in the studio and he, he records the whole album and all his parts he gets in one take. Wow, he just, one take? He's on. Everything? Yeah, yeah everything. Yeah, he, he, you don't understand how good he was. Neither did I <laughs> until I spent wow. four years. And five I've never five seen him five. play a full drum set ever. Myself. Oh my God, dude, like, blew me away, man. <laughs> I had no idea he had that, you know, cat in the hat. You know, he just, just like pulled the rabbit straight out and I was like, whoa, <laughs> this is remarkable. So Eddie really had this deep lust to be my, my drummer for the kind of punk rock folk eyes music you know and man he, he was so pissed off when i wouldn't fire my drummer to go on the west coast tour but i, I was like hey i already told him that he could come what am i supposed to say so he took me straight off the tour if i wasn't gonna it was his way or the highway every time you know and uh, you know i understand because it's his show he, he was my mentor i i had to be subservient to him and serve him and i did and faithfully <laughs> Without, you know, fail, you know, I was just like, I was just Huckleberry or whatever in that scene. Yeah, <laughs> very humble person without the big, huge ego, you know, so. And, and, and just the discipline and, and uh, the high um, code of ethics that he enforced for his operating modality for the craft, it was, you know, 
it really like okay so this band from LA that we played with you know in one of our first shows where he played Andy Warpig came Ray Reeves uh, Quantum Colossus Andy Wings punk band like I had all these people playing with me at this Ice House gig it was our first gig as Yoga Witch and I'd already been playing out with Eddie doing the, the folk circuit shows you know every week and um, backing him up and playing a couple of my songs but I was really nervous because it was like a totally different situation. But he was there and I played with him. And Andy Warpigs was there and we needed a bass player. And so Andy Warpigs was our, our bass player and, and this band Decoded from LA was was playing that night. And uh, they were really, really good, you know. Two chicks, chick drummer, chick bass player, and, and this dude. And uh, so they wanted to come back to Phoenix after meeting and we exchanged information. So I hosted them. They slept in my house. I I got them a first Friday gig. I got them a radio station gig. I got them Eastside Record gig. I got them um, Calvert and Violence gig. And um, and Andy pretty much was the controlling factor of stage uh, arrangements at what had been Thought Crime, Michael Twenty Three, and I forget the name of this place that was kind of like next place they moved to and I hosted artists in the inner building and it's really loose you know it's kind of like put together like you know unprofessional craft work and but it was like an underground uh folk punk scene and and one of um Andy Warpig's like favorite venues and he was in tight with these people so I contacted him to include him on a bill and told him I was going down and I needed to get this band on the stage and Eddie was also put on on the bill but he pulled my band from from performing that night, and it was kind of like a power play, and it was kind of like getting stuck in the rear with, with no reach around, you know. <laughs> and sucks. and then he was supposed to that same night we 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 had the first Friday game they were supposed to do that I got kicked out of Big Dandy, and then he was supposed to come out with the same band and people to perform at Palo Verde Lounge, and he never fucking showed up. And I was like, I, I basically laid it on him, like Eddie's work ethic in, in music. And it's basically, if you have a gig, you, you're there, you're on time, you have your shit set up to go on stage in a certain way, you protect your gear. Like, there's all this, like, protocol. He had me, like, I, I could not deviate from it under any circumstance. And I took it as the law, the Bible on performing was instilled in me by Eddie. So I, I kind of fucking ripped Andy Warpig's ass along those lines because it wasn't professional music conduct what he did. Well, it you holds know? other people up, not just you know the, the bands that are coming in, you know, and then there's other people working the venue, you know, the people that are setting up everything, sound check, everything, everything that's involved. It's yeah, being, it's it's just bottom line being considerate. Mm-hmm. You know. So. Yeah, yeah. If venue like. Did some like book somebody else for a night we we're supposed to play, which happened once. Oh my God, he he would start he would get really nasty and mean and start freaking out, you know, having a real like meltdown. So I mean, yeah, and it, I think part of Eddie needed to be in that environment. It, it's what set his soul free and made him who like he could be who he really was as long as he was like a vessel for music and performance. And, um, he, um, 
like with the COVID thing going down and everything, I think that he was um, having like he, he was storing up too much energy that he cannot discharge from his psyche, and it was the result was that you know he couldn't fucking sleep anymore, and three days with no sleep. Uh, one of my strengths once told me, "You're clinically psychotic." You know, really, you are no longer. You no longer have the same operating system. Check. You could turn into a werewolf or become a homicidal maniac easily because <clears throat> of sleep deprivation past 72 hours. Check this out. So, he couldn't sleep, and in the pain he was in, what kind of pain was he in? Well, he got severely like injured trying to get on a bus. Like He wiped out, you know, basically. like one, one time we were playing at Metro Center on a stage that was kind of high up and off the ground, you know, and they put his chair like right next to the back edge of the stage and he sat down and he went over backwards and hit his head really hard on the ground in this pole, like jagged, like, like marble pole that was square. Oh man. And I, yeah, like that was fucked. And he didn't even like, I'm like, Eddie, you need to sue these motherfuckers. This is this covered under the liability insurance. And all you got to do is put in the claim. You know, I, do I don't know if you're all right or not, but it was really scary for me because I was right next to him and he goes over the back. And this man, you know, I, I did would do anything for him. He had become my 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 savior, my my you know messiah in music. He brought to me what my life's dream. You know, I'd always wanted to be a musician, but I, I was so fucking scared to get on stage. He, so he made that accessible to me. And for that, like, there's nothing I wouldn't have done for him, you know? That's priceless. And, uh, there's no money, you know, that could buy that. Yeah, like, like, you know, you, you realize when, when somebody's gone, like, what you've lost. And it didn't hit me for, like, until a, a week after, maybe two weeks after his death, it finally, it finally caught up to me what I had lost. You know, the album, he, he so much wanted to do this album together with me, you know? And we had it, he had planned it, every detail. He, 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 he like, I had an idea what I was going to do for an album, and he's all, no, you're not going to do that. This is what you're going to do. And he told me specifically every step of the way what was going to be done, that he was producing it, that he was going to put the album on vinyl with forced exposure and get global distribution. He wanted me to tour with him. He wanted his name on it. He wanted to be the drummer. You know, he really wanted that with me. And, you know, because of a ruthless person, you know, attacking the resources that were set aside for that with Eddie, you know, I suddenly had in my hands, you know, the, the ability to make it happen financially. And I was telling Eddie in front of this person, you know, hey, I got, it's, we were all ready to go. I got it. All the funds are in place, man. And um, it, it was on. And then and then I was basically robbed, <laughs> was under fraud. And, uh, man, realizing what was taken from both me and Eddie in, in, in that loss, like, just caused me to fucking, I couldn't stop crying uh, a day or two ago, like, for a really long time. <laughs> You know, and I didn't realize I had any feelings about losing Eddie, but I don't know if anybody else in this town loved Eddie as much as I do. You know, I really love the man. And, 
I can't say enough and express enough gratitude about Eddie Detroit. He, he's he was such a kind man to me. I remember Dan and Mary and Doug Clark came by and took me and Eddie. This was like in the early years, you know, closer to the 1990 realm. It was at the time that Schindler's List came out, and we were at the Cine Capri, which is like the the grand theater of the Phoenix metropolitan area for its time period. That's yeah. where Star Wars showed when they came out. Yeah, I went to you see know. Star Wars like a dozen times there. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, and the line would be around the building. You'd never seen any line like it to get into a movie like Star Wars. But we went and saw Schindler's List, and we took acid. I don't know who all in the group took it. Yeah. And so I'm watching Schindler's List with Eddie right next to me. And then Doug after that next to Dan and then Mary on the end. We're on the line in the theater. And like at a certain point in the movie, there's just tears streaming down my face, you know? And like Eddie looks at me and I look at Eddie and he's like, heavy duty, man. You know, but it was this empathy for 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 the pain in my soul that I was experiencing right. that led to that that was like him being that being next to me that showed me some kindness you know that's Eddie man he showed me nothing but kindness every, every step of the way he was so kind to me I used to come over there with the singers of a Wise Monkey Orchestra this girl alley with huge tits popping out of her outfit, and then another chick, thinking of this polywog, you know, they were hanging out in my place. And um, I go to bring Eddie some weed, you know, and he's doing his psychic network uh, calls in his back room, you know, living at this trailer park off of uh, 16th Street Marine School. And um, his eyes are just popping out of his head. But, I mean, like... The, the, the appreciation of my presence was never underestimated. You know, he was always just happy to have me around. And the fact that he, he wanted more than anybody I've ever met to, to be a part of my musical experience is just fucking unprecedented. He, 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 like, I mean, when he relates to me the darkest moments of his life, you might say, and, and, you know, uh, maybe a fetish towards like dark things. Um, that wasn't ever my experience with him and I, the experience of him and I was always nurturing, compassion, appreciation. And man, when I heard that he had, uh, what happened, man? I, I just, I just couldn't even, like, I was not even available to go down that wormhole and think about it. Like, cause I just processed Andy dying, you know, we had talked about doing gigs. So that was like a fresh, uh, trauma, but it wasn't near the level of suffering. I thought that was the significant suffering. No, it wasn't shit compared to Eddie. The suffering I, had to process with Eddie's passing and especially the way it happened was huge, very, very big. <laughs> like, unlike, like I didn't grieve my grandfather dying the way I grieved Eddie dying. 
Yeah, don't feel bad yeah. about that because I have a friend, Jeff Joseph, that died, and then my mom died, and I grieved for him more, but he died with a murder, in a murder, you know, all suddenly. Yeah, my, my, my uh, father was murdered in 94, actually, and my book that I'm doing uh, right now, it's going to be called The Funeral Birds. It's the actual investigation journal. I, came, I was living in a three and a half million dollar beach house in La Jolla, and I had to come back to Phoenix and investigate the murder for a month. So that's what I'm transcribing. I just got through reading the murder trial, which was god awful, and, and turned me into Pert Muir, a fucking homicidal maniac, reading it. So fuck. Wow. It was just beyond belief. Fuck. So all of that's going to go into the new book, and uh, I think it'll be much more cohesive. Exp- Experience for the reader, and um, it's going to be intense. I got to check it out but, for sure. Yeah, that that, that that if anything is probably going to be worth checking out in terms of what I've published so far, and it's definitely going to set a new precedent and methodology for what I do. Yeah, but um, yeah, so yeah, like losing my dad, I, I just collapsed to the floor in front of the ocean, you know when I heard the news from Phoenix and yeah, that, that was fucked. So I know what you're saying about losing somebody because they're murdered. Yeah. I've learned a lot in the last year myself, like doing <clears throat> the other podcast, giant rod podcast, learned a lot from doing that through the pandemic and, you know, losing people. And then like, like trying to, you know, like I've been atheist basically my whole life. And, um, yeah. and then I'm kind of like trying to get spirituality a little bit in my life a little bit. And yeah. so like, I've been like, you know, Eastern influences of, 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 uh, religion to a degree, like, like, I'm like Ram Dass, for instance, yeah. you know, like here and now. Uh, was he Albert or Metzer, uh, Ram Dass, I can't remember those. Larry, Albert, Richard Albert. And yeah, he was Richard Albert. Uh, yeah, so, became, okay, just wanted he, to confirm that. For yeah, he took LSD, yeah, he took LSD and then went went to meet the guru, you know, the, his Baba, and then gave him yeah. 900 micrograms of LSD and he ate it and didn't even phase him. He called it he called it guru medicine. Oh, you're giving me, you got more of that guru medicine for me? And so, yeah, that, that's that's interesting. That's uh, Beatles were doing the same thing right. with Donovan. Maharishi, you know, yeah. Yeah, Maharishi Institute, David Lynch, Transcendental Meditation. So it's which is interesting because like you're we're talking about like I want to you know like I was usually I wouldn't talk about something like this on this type of podcast, but since you know the pains we both go through of losing people, like and you're talking about his soul. You know, like, and Ram Dass talks about, you know, the soul dies and it only knows love. So, like, like I just look at everything that's helped me with people dying, you know, close friends and saved me a lot of therapy, too. I've been going to therapy for myself because of people dying, everything. So, um, yeah, something weird happened. You know, I, I published an album in 2016. I already know that this kind of thing's going to happen. Like, my, my motto is, it doesn't mean much now, it's built for the future. And that kind of was the example where it proved to be true. Suddenly in 2019, and I think it must have something to do with the pandemic, 
like I started getting like BMI royalties for getting plays across all major platforms in the United States of like eight, 80,000 plays, you know, like to me, I, I never like had that kind of interest in my music. And I could not figure out why that these two particular songs were garnering all this freaking attention consistently and, and still are. And, um, the one song is called Mental Health, and the other is called So Long. And I, I think basically people somehow like identified with that and found it. And the, the lyrical content, I'm guessing, and and it's a side effect of the pandemic has resonated with that mass casualty event and people's feelings. So, yeah, yeah. it's been a been an interesting thing. You know, like it's hard to you know, like your your plans that you made. You know, they've been diminished, you know, by death. Yeah, life, you know. life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Right. And you have all these plans of what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, and then suddenly you're dead, and it never happens. You were just planning it the whole time. You, you were in this world in your head of what reality was going to be. I mean, you have the power to make it become what your visualizations are, but this world can drag you down so far away from like having the dis self-discipline and, and like uh, enduring uh, fortitude and valor to accomplish such things that it's a rare individual that actually can produce creative work of any sort and, and have it be well received in their own lifetime. I mean, you've experienced it with your show, you know, so you know what that's like, but you're one of the lucky ones and those lucky people are extremely intelligent you know, that, that, that's the capacity of um, organized thought that they can construct to and planning to ensure that that what they intend to do gets done. Yeah. Whereas, what, like, other people may dream of such such ideas, but they never even get close to it, you know. They become part of the machine, and that becomes their life, the pursuit of, of money to have objects that are meaningless, because... I think the only thing we take with us, if we do take anything at all, is love. Yeah, and, that's uh, part of our soul, you know, and that's why yeah. it's so important for the here and now because here and now, right now, is the most important thing. And it's hard to plan the future. I I struggle with this with myself all the time <clears throat> and everything. I want to plan the future. <laughs> I do, and uh, yep. and and um, you, you're gonna get that. You're gonna get your album done. You know, it's just, it's unfortunate these things happen, you know, like, like the obstacles that come my way with, 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 with Bohemia After Dark oh itself, you know what I mean? And, yeah, I mean, living in a city is just going to fuck you up real quick sometimes. If you're in a bad environment and things are going down around you, which amount to, like, catastrophic uh, obstacles to you doing what you're intending to do, then your life just becomes like this fucking cool of counter uh you know your your true will is being diminished and so your fulfillment as, as a human being is being diminished and therefore your self-worth and outlook become diminished and so like for me i had to like run away from the city i came down here to bisbee i don't know anybody in this town i have a, a space to myself that nobody uh, can interfere with. And so my PTSD de escalates and I suddenly just 
like the other night, started getting like the wherewithal to begin writing again. I hadn't published since 2016, but it's all coming back, and and I, I have the place and time. Yeah, and, and have, you, you got to stay where it's at. You know what I mean? Until you get through what you got to get through. And yeah, I think like, that's where you're at. You know. So yeah, I mean, I just my only hope is that like I don't care about dying. But my only hope is that I get my creative obligation and goals done before that happens. I hope my body lasts me at least long enough to do that, which is, you know, another 20 oil paintings I said to myself are the one requisite. Um, the album is the next requisite. And honoring Eddie will be much of doing that album is going to be much of honoring Eddie. Um, and then the next thing is just to, I, I have about at least 20 more books to transcribe before I can begin to write to the capacity that I can write at now, having been through like scores of education. Most of what I written was prior to ever going to advanced uh, academia. So my ability to write isn't demonstrated on what I've published. It's just like transcribing everything that's already been written because I, it, it's something I have to do. And I, it'd be really nice to like, even like get all that done, you know, 20 volumes done in addition to the eight or nine I've already done. And then maybe a couple with my true writing capacity as a, um, as a, as the predominant thing, because it, it, it's light years ahead of what, what I've done so far. And, um, somebody who had a, you know, um, a series, an animated series on Nickelodeon, you know, an experience in, in art and such, like, commented to me uh, that he saw what I've done so far as being fodder for an HBO miniseries, you know. You know, I don't think I'll live long enough for it to see that happen, something even akin to that happen, but at least I'll leave behind the opportunity for you know, such consideration. Yeah. Uh, uh, there are no limits to yourself, you know what I mean? You got, yeah. you have, you have ideas and you have these things that you're already, that transpired and that's already been put out. You know what I mean? You're already done a majority of it and then you're just going to, you know, you had a little rut pandemic, you know what I mean? Caused a lot yeah. of things to slow down a little bit. Maybe it was a good thing yeah. like I've said in the past <laughs> on other, on the other podcasts I've talked on. Because of uh, you know, of the bad, there's good too, and um, yeah, like I, I was one of the few people driving around Phoenix at night when we were all ordered to stay at home. It was like almost a curfew, but like within two days of, of that, like nobody doing anything, everybody sequestered. Like the air in Phoenix cleared up, and suddenly you could breathe in a way that was unavailable prior, and you realize like what a significant effect the population is having on your experiences, uh, creature on experiencing life on earth. And, uh, I don't know. I'm not going to go down the, the thought road. I, I just had concerning my thoughts about the pandemic and what it's, what, what it's really about. But, um, I mean, I, I researched all the plagues known to man in history and how long they lasted and what the death toll was and all those kind of factoids as a comparative analysis to what is, what's happening. And 
I don't know that what we're considering the end of the pandemic is is actually what it, we think it is right now. Like the politicians are declaring that it's effectively over and we can get back to normal living without masks and such and normal socialization. But I saw a Nobel Prize winner from, I think, um, uh, Dutch origin, I think he was, based on the sound of the language. He, he was saying that basically the, the mutated COVID variants that are manifesting now are significantly more virulent and that the death rate amongst people who have altered their geometric topology of their own cells to resist the um, virus from being able to attack it. We're changing like thousands and thousands of years of uh, evolutionary, um, you know, natural selection for more uh, survivable characteristics are engendered. The, the characteristics of survival are engendered through natural selection in our DNA. And the ones that are more successful become the population and the, and the failed characteristics become extinct, right? So <clears throat> we're altering that in effort to uh, interfere with the virus's ability to bind to our, our cells and attack us. Well, that's huge because you're basically changing the resonant frequency of the human. So what we have are people who have received the, the, the vaccine are technically no longer human. They have been, you know, uh, changed at the very core to a different resonant structure than what the DNA had um, prescribed to it based on, you know, millions of years of evolution. If you go back to Lucy for, you know, 3.6 million years as the first hominid after Pleistocene afarensis and made our Ethiopia. It's a good point you bring and, up because, like, with the, the our military that gives uh, vaccines, when I when I joined the Army in 70, 78... Um, they, they gave us uh, everybody an inoculation. You're going to go across across state lines. You're going to end up in a different country. We're going to have to inoculate you for this. And they don't tell you what it is because you're government property at that point. You sign your life away when you become in the military. You sign you sign your death certificate. The first thing you do is sign your. I I questioned everything. I got in trouble all the time because like why am I signing my death certificate? I'm not dead. Yeah. <laughs> why am I, why am, what am I, what are you giving me? You know, like, what is the, you know, like, I, there was like, um, when we, when you get on the basic training, they have you, there's three guys on either side. You walk, like, like walk in the middle of that line, and they have the guns and the needles, and boom, 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 boom. And then you can, then they, it seems like they reload in different different type of medicines, and then you go through again. And we went through it three times doing that, and then we got inoculated. Like one time, there was this long eight inch needle, and they were poking me in the arm. They're like, stop that! <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, you yeah. don't even what you're getting. So like, I you know, like you know, like we know in our government the experiment with people, especially with the military personnel with LSD for one.
wishes, derelict dream, screaming wishes, fidgety seam, abandoned building, graffiti gawk, leopard feline, crackhead walk. I just wanna run away to the ghetto lights. I just wanna run away to the ghetto lights. I just wanna run away to the ghetto lights. I just wanna run away to the ghetto lights. mailbox is full and cannot accept any messages at this time. Goodbye. Else, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, I have a very weird experience, which my quote-unquote adopted father self-appointed when he heard my father's murder. I introduced to him by the physicist to train me that my grandma introduced me to as a person that would help me with the design and construction of a novel microscope I wanted to create. And so after I just graduated and stopped in Portland to play with Paige from ONS and badass motherfuckers at Johnny Belushi's house, <laughs> I, I landed I landed in Southern California in uh, this town close to Palm Springs. And this man, I guess, you know, was his, his death, his obituary wrote, was written by, you know, his one of his elite friends. And I mean, he'd be talking to the Pope, Prince Charles. I mean, he, he knew all the world rulers, including Spain, you name it. He was a blue blood from England, right? So his dad had been British intelligence during World War II in Burma and now Miramar. And uh, he gave me a unpublished book to read, you know, the year before he died. And uh, he said, this is my life story, but it was just him as a young child you know, um, fleeing Burma after the Japanese attack. And his, his boat with his mom was torpedoed by Japanese thugs and they floated on wreckage until being rescued. And then his dad was a part of three groups leading a uh, uh, forced escape march from the Japanese to the jungles on their way to the Indian border. And they were getting picked off and their skin was getting peeled back. So basically, um, Blue Blood let the manor house going back to 1100 and royalty coming to their property to do fox hunts and they would trade him like uh, art like he had original Monet's Rembrandt's Picasso's you know in his um, in his home Ming Voss you know he's a collector of antiquities as well and uh, like he, he gave I think I want to say six billion in uh, Federal Reserve notes to Nelson Mandela in South Africa and and basically was a catalyst for the end of apartheid. And he said to his wife one morning at breakfast, what used to be the best place in the world to live? Why South Africa before you fucked up apartheid, you know? It's a beautiful place to live, you know? It's absolutely wonderful. And he said, the only killer was Mandela was his wife. 
<laughs> I talked to you and Peacekeeper, so that was absolutely true. Well, he had graduated with a master's in engineering and a PhD in a specialization of biology and found himself in the post-World War II um, yet to be developed but never really fully implemented a biological warfare um, modality that had emerged as a consequence of acceleration of uh, technology and understanding of human-controlled um, um, foibles. And he was in the Congo with Jonas Salk, um, basically modifying the polio vaccine as these um, European powers withdrew their three factions. I can't remember what they were. They were withdrawing as this brutal dictator was coming into power. And they had taken all these, um, well, I can't remember what kind of monkeys they were, green monkeys? I'm not sure. But they basically contaminated intentionally the polio vaccine and rounded everybody up as this transition was happening and was inoculating them with contaminated uh, polio vaccine. And that is the origin of AIDS. So knowing that, um, basically, it's a template for what can happen uh, when such a strategy is employed to conduct a wholesale genocide on an undesirable faction of um, the population on Earth. He, I had a pathologist, doctor, girlfriend at the time, and they're having this conversation about the, the notion and the purpose of the of that operation was to um, divorce from the planet something they referred to as the scourge of the Earth, the scourge being black pigmented uh, individuals from Africa, apparently. And then it became the homosexuals who were the undesirable population in the United States. And so the bathhouses were contaminated and ran rampant through the gay population. And so, yeah, so so just think about that and think about what's going on now. And a, a notion such as a weaponized biological agent I akin to um, COVID, you know, because we're taught in the class at the anthropology department issue called the evolution of disease about the mixing vessels of the pig in China being the uh, origin of the new flu virus every season. That's how it comes about. Yeah, the wet, within, wet markets, part of the wet markets. That, right yeah, now? so this is, this is a patented, genetically engineered disease that got out of the lab, supposedly accidentally. Yeah. But um, I, don't, I, I don't really, I find that hard to believe considering what I know. You know, what I just conveyed to you, you know, there's a Sundance documentary called The Origins of AIDS. You can, it's like three hours long, but it tells the whole story I'm talking about. And the PhD MD from the FDA in the beginning of the, um, you know, documentary um, was introduced to me by my doctor's father. And uh, he so wanted me, like he'd been hunting his whole life for the missing link of the origin of the AIDS. And it was it was my quote unquote adopted father and he would always introduce me as his son. So because this, this actual like a uh, prince of uh, English descent that was his PhD um, lusted after bringing me into the fold of the, of his laboratory in LA on top of a hospital, a certain hospital. And, um, he, like I built uh, devices in his lab to use harmonic resonance to kill, 
various diseases and he had like microscope. Like he had so much equipment, it was ridiculous. But he had a vault, and in the vault were test tubes of every known disease. His wife was the head of molecular biology at USC, and so these are the kind of people Michael. What did I say? Uh, the wrong name. Um, adopted father. <laughs> Get it that out, which um, <laughs> well. um, you know, um, he basically, you know, facilitated these kinds of um, introductions. Like he would have me get on the phone with these world power brokers all around the world, and he'd introduce me as a son. He wanted me to take over um, his work, be his successor. But he had lied to me about something that happened overseas where someone tried to kill him and in a very violent way that left him totally deformed and uh, missing body parts. It's amazing he, he survived at all. Uh, like, that's just, like, unbelievable that he didn't survive what happened. And then that's when I really got sucked into it, you know, and for the next 10 years, I was basically what you might consider a handler. But, you know, anything he asked me to do, I attended to it. And, um, you know... Yeah, that's me too. I'm a very loyal person. Absolute yeah, loyalty. Don't, don't impeccable. That, man. So, what, yeah, well, so let's, let's wrap this up, Chris. On okay, Eddie. sure. What do you yeah, wanna, how do you want to end it? Well, here, let me just read um, the description that, like, I started on my own, and then as I was starting to hone it for, for accuracy, I ended up working with Eddie and, um, and and what I forgot even existed, I just ran across it accidentally, like trolling through different pages associated with my musical um, visibility on the web. <clears throat> and so I extracted this uh, little description, and I'll I'll read it as a um, summation of what needs to be said about Eddie, though we digressed considerably into realms. <laughs> kind of off the beaten path, you might say. Okay. And uh, hold on a second. My the electronic device, of course, being a fucking asshole right now. Because he's in Bisbee. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's, it's like <laughs> it's freezing up. It's not like getting down to where I needed to go. Oh, you're running hold on, on Bisbee time now, man. <laughs> it's probably a fucking like you know U.S. communications outpost uh, by the border, you know. <laughs> I'm not trying to think. We, we, we said too much. <laughs> Hold on a second. Let's, let's slow, let's slow him down a little more. Yeah. We've got to slow this guy bitch. down. They're trying to get the information out. Yeah. You're not going to give a goddamn accurate description uh, engineered already for Eddie's uh, uh, footprint in the world while he lives. He's fucking not We're not going to stop it. We're going to get it out no matter what. <laughs> Yeah, God damn it. Like, hold on a second. No worries. Well, I prayed for Eddie, like, if he had any bad, like, rap or if he was suffering on the other side because of the way he went out. You know, I, I prayed that light be given to him and, and a pathway away from any more suffering, like grace. And you know what I'm saying? Like, that was my my deepest. What is going on with this son of a bitch? I'm trying to get some problems in it. I mean, it's just, you know. Yeah, it's not working when you want it to. Oh Christ, man! Like why? Like 
I worried about this happening, and I was going to write everything down, so I had it in hard copy, you know? Hold on a second. Oh, man, son of a bitch. I put the pause button on, so I figured it out. <laughs> it's like, oh, all right, hold on. Yeah, you can, you can clip this, like, um... Okay, go ahead. Yeah, great being on the show. Thank you for having me as an ambassador to Eddie's uh, Lifetime Discussion. Thank you. In closing, I'm going to offer this uh, this comprehensive um, Eddie-assisted um, story um, by, through Eddie's own um, editing uh, deference. So here it goes. Greetings from Yoga Witch uh, Broadcast Community. I played guitar in Eddie Detroit's band and give Eddie much credit for getting me out and playing on a weekly basis for my formative years as a stage musician. Eddie is also the influencing factor that led to categorizing our music as folk, goth, post-punk. Doug Clark from Mighty Sphincter introduced me to Eddie back around 1990 when Eddie had a folk coffee house called The Grotto. We would go see folk bands there and hang out with Eddie as he performed his day job of reading tarot cards over the Dion Fortune psychic line. This time I spent watching Eddie do this job combined with years of study eventually allowed me some basic ability to perform the same task for a spell while residing in Tacoma, Washington, circa 1994. Quickly, the determination was made that reading cards over the phone to strangers wasn't my cup of tea. I still value the study of tarot cards as espoused by such organizations as Builders of the Dam out of Los Angeles, which thus far has taught me that I actually know a lot less about tarot than I ever suspected. Eddie, at the time of writing this, is about 62 years old. He died at age 68. So this is like uh, six years ago. I reckon. So Eddie's about 62, I reckon, and has had a very persistent musical career spanning since his teen years. He spent four years as a London Street musician during 1969, 71, 72, and 73. Upon returning to the States, he relocated himself in Hollywood and found himself playing next to the Go-Go's. Eddie says Belinda Carlisle is a witch and belonged to a popular coven in Los Angeles at the time. Eddie soon found himself hanging with Darby Crash and others of the Germs and El Duce of the Mentors, as well as Danny Doherty of the Mamas and Papas and Mama Cass. Eddie released his first seven-inch record during 1977, and finding a copy of this record recording isn't easy. He played at the original punk club in L.A., The Mask, on November 1977, his first single was called You Burn Me Out. You can hear the song on a YouTube video of Eddie's performance at the Starwood on March 1978. The band back then was called Eddie Detroit and the Liquid Gang, complete with contortionist Johnny Duffy, who played the demon in Eddie's track, I Am Pazuzu, from his vinyl recording from 1982 titled Immortal Gods, which is now considered a cult classic and host did such notable performers as Dan and Mary Clark from the Feeders and Victory Acres, as well as Alan Bishop and Charlie Goucher of the Sin City Girls. The record has been released on three different record labels since its first release and has sold over 5,000 copies. Eddie has resided in Phoenix since 1981, 
and has released a total of six vinyl records and seven CDs. He actually re- like released more uh, vinyl record, uh, Black Co- Crow just Gazebo uh, after this, which I don't think he planned on at the time of the writing of this, uh, you know, little caveat of his career. But moving on, um, uh, so Philosopher's Journey uh, was released in 1987. 1997, Jungle Captive was released in 2007, Lost in a Silent Movie, 2009, Ghetto Cafe, 2010. Ghetto Cafe had a lot of like catchy songs that made Eddie an overnight sensation again. It was like a height of popularity that he wrote from 2010 till, you know. Um, yeah, he was very popular in the music scene until COVID and then the carpet guy yanked out. Anyways, moving on. Fin- uh, Street of Dreams, Vagabond came out in 2012. Uh, I played on that record. Also, 2012 saw the release of Eddie Detroit meets the Sin City Girls on a 45 vinyl by, put out by Revolver Records. Additionally, there were two EPs released on Majora Records on vinyl. They were 1995 electronic version of Memphisto Cigars. That's a good song to play. And uh, Pig Symphony with the Sun... City Girls as a complete band. Eddie thinks in collage form ever since the late 60s. And his lyrics are derived from personal tragedies. And he likes to use humor to color tragedy and tragedy to color humor. Kind of like Shakespeare, Eddie says. In conclusion that in the Vagabond CD sums up his life. And he has now said everything that he wanted to say and doesn't plan to release any more records henceforth. A remarkable musician and mentor, I've always appreciated the pleasant demeanor of Eddie Detroit. He has taught me a lot about the dedication required to maintain the professional aesthetics of a musician that takes his craft seriously. So even though it's it sounds from, from the tone of this um, that Eddie was like pre-planning shutting down everything in, in some respect like he'd had enough even then but he didn't milk another album out of it i think black coat crows gazebo was his last album i'm not entirely sure about that but yeah he did another album at least after making these statements and uh yep i think covid just fucking took away his ability to discharge all the psychic energy he had and became overwhelming and was keeping him up and he couldn't sleep and he just went mad but hats off to detroit and roy harper (laughs) folk legends yes and then i appreciate this um chris and um and then everything that your insight and your closeness with eddie and i was i met him a few times myself always really super nice to me always very pleasant never Never a mean spirited towards me once, and I, I appreciate it. And um, I never had a chance to play any of his stuff on the show, but looks like I get to on the podcast here, which is cool and everything. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, feel free to call me if you need some help, like making selections. I'll, I'll give you what I what I think are the best tunes to fill the space. Yeah, that'd be good because I, I'm going to need help on that. There's so much. Yeah, just call me later when you get down to it or tomorrow, whenever. Okay, I'll be editing it tomorrow. But um, I'm going to edit this part out. 
So, Chris, do you want to give any you know, plugs out for yourself? You know, like your you know websites or social media things or anything like that that we want people to know about. Um, <clears throat> like um, on eBay, you can buy my art. Um, I, I, I sell paintings. Um, people seem to be willing to pay somewhere between. 350 and 500 for one of my oil paintings, but um, the ones that I consider less desirable, I go for less. So, so if you're in, interested in purchasing my artwork, you can contact me uh, through my Yahoo email. It's called All We Are Is Water, one word at yahoo.com. And um, as far as the music goes, we're, uh, the 2016 album by yogi witch called hail stella is available at Bandcamp, and um it's being listened to uh, quarterly about eighty thousand song plays per quarter from uh, two songs off that album predominantly uh so give a listen to our music uh maybe check out the zombies track although i consider that and eddie loved that song for stage and audience reaction for some reason two songs off the album i would have never expected would have done anything are the ones that are doing something and they're called so long and uh mental health so check that out and uh final thing is like <clears throat> you can acquire all my books on um through amazon barnes and noble and um let's see that like kindle you can you can check out my books um if you're only going to check out one book, um, the forthcoming Funeral Birds is going to be um, the the best thing I've published so far that, that is part of that body of work that comprises like 27 volumes. So I'm, I got less than 20 left to go, but <laughs> hoping to get that done. Wow. So that's, that, that's all of what I have to offer to people that might be interested. So check it out if you'd like to, web to, um, we'll have links sure. up too, Chris. So I'll put links up on the on the description on the podcast. But really we appreciate, appreciate that. Yeah, appreciate you coming on and talking on my podcast and everything. And uh, everybody, check us out. Check out yeah. Eddie Detroit. Check out Chris. And I'll hey, have links. Yeah, thank thank you so much, Jeff, for having me and the insight to give me this opportunity and. There's anything else that I can be of assistance in the future of the specialized subject matter? Let me know. Well, it's we'll do. We'll do. A very Thanks. like organic and easy process. Like I was really nervous about it and just like fretting it last night. <laughs> Kept me up all night and then Sorry. it ended up being really casual and easy. So I, I was nervous, but I got over it real quick. So thanks for that. I appreciate it. And then like, yeah, I'm sorry if it made you nervous, but. Your relax sounds like. Hey, hold on a second. I'm gonna say goodbye to everybody. And I'll hold on. Yeah. <laughs> goodbye, everybody. Hey, check out Giant Rock Podcast on all twelve, fourteen streaming platforms. You like spirituality about the here and now Ross Dom and UFOs and conspiracies. It's Howard Stern meets meets uh, Art Bell, kind of coast-to-coast kind of feel there. So check it out, Giant Rock Podcast, and also Bohemia After Dark Podcast. This is our second show, and it's on Apple to- <laughs> iTunes, Apple iTunes, and Spotify, and also Podbean, which is an app, by the way. <clears throat> but anyways, see you, see you next time, people. All right, it's called Autograph. To find I've done the difficult things all my life, but the less complicated have been somehow neglected through it all.
Never rode a two-wheeler, never danced a two-step, never came down off a wave at Malibu Beach. Oh, no. But I've chased tornadoes in Pontiac, Michigan, and falling stars in Fairfield, Iowa. I've avoided wars and following leaders. I split my personality in Pasadena at an early age. I kept waking up in gardens with Franciscan nuns stripped to the waist. I cheated at cards in a broken-down motel room in Reno. I governed Orange Grove graveyards under an assumed name. I married the boss's daughter and got strange raises. I forced Hollywood movie producers to make girls come alive, just like a Pepsi generation marquee facade. And oh yeah, once, just once, did I ever write my autograph. Filming on Bohemian After Dark. I want to remind all you guys that uh, if you're going home that way, don't go home that way, man. Cops are all over the place. Yeah. We're checking. Oh, my God.